How many of you this morning can testify that he is a way maker, he's a miracle worker? That is who he is. We are the testament to that. When somebody asks, well, well, how do you know that? How do you know that about God? Look at my life. I was dead in sin, but God made me alive. Only, only a way maker, miracle worker can do that. We who are overwhelmed in sin could be given life and life abundantly, given joy, given peace, given life that matters on mission. And so we praise the Lord for him being our way maker. If you want to take your Bibles out with me this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, there's one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 571, Isaiah chapter 6, page 571. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're invited or, or you just happen to pop in and you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. So you want to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word. God has spoken. You can know Him. And we want you to have that copy to be able to read what God has said about himself for you. Isaiah chapter 6. As you turn there, uh, you know, it's interesting in conversation with people how depending upon the respect, the position, or the character of the person that we're speaking with, there's a little bit of nervousness that can grow in that, isn't there? Like depending on the person that we're speaking with, there can be a bit of awe, respect, and, and maybe even a bit of fear. So, so an example of this, I have four sons, and when they're talking back and forth, and one of the sons says to another son, hey, why don't you do this, they don't answer by going, yes, my brother, I will do that for you. No, instead, they might respond with, you can't tell me what to do. Right, if you have kids, you probably have heard that phrase before. Or then, they come to me, right, and I'm, I'm saying to them, I want you to do this. I'm not expecting them to say, Oh, yeah, you can't tell me what to do. No, I expect them then to say, Oh, great father, great one, I want to do for you what you have shared, right? We expect this different conversation. Uh, let's take students with teachers, right? What we should expect is that students see their teachers and there's a bit of respect, there's a bit of awe. And if they don't do that, we ship them off to the military. Now, not all of them are like that, but let's be honest. Isn't it true? How many of us know people who were rebellious as teenagers that are now in the military, right? We send them off, and then they're given a drill sergeant at basic training who yells in their face, and the only response they can have is, yes, sir. All of a sudden, those who would rebel against every authority now have to answer to authority, and they have no option. It's uh, probably, probably worthy of them as well. It fixes them in some form and fashion. Uh, it's true, right? Depending on the respect of the position or the position of the person that we're talking with, there's a little bit of awe, a little bit of response that's different. If you meet the President of the United States, whatever political persuasion you are, there's a bit of respect for the office. There's a bit of respect for the position. I remember when I uh, went to ask for Allison's hand in marriage. I kind of did it the traditional way and went to her parents and asked if I could have their permission to marry her. And we were reminiscing about this the other day because we were talking about our older two boys who are 19 and 20 years old. And we were talking about them and it hit us that we were married at that age. Like we were married, I was married at, I was just turning 20. I was 19 when we actually got married. And I've shared with you before why that is. She could not resist me. And so as even a young person, I said, okay, I'm gonna give in, I'm gonna help this woman out. But I remember I had planned this great script of what I was going to say to her dad. Now, her dad at the moment, at the time, was, was a 260-pound weightlifter. I mean, he was, a, 
He was like, not, and when I say not ripped like bodybuilder, but a weightlifter, he could bench press over 300 pounds. He could have with one easy little fist squashed me into the dirt never to be remembered again. He could have. And so I was nervous about this, but I had it all scripted. I knew exactly what I was going to say. And so one day Allison was gone from her house. I went over and met her parents, and I sat down with her dad, and I, I said, sir, I would like to ask your permission to marry your daughter. I have to confess, I said those words, and all of a sudden, my mind went blank. I was nervous as could be. Sweat was dripping. Now, my script was to go forward and tell him why it should be a privilege for his daughter to marry me. But I sat there in silence, and then he began to ask questions. Well, how are you going to afford this? Uh, Jesus? Uh, God is with us. There was a nervousness. Why? Because this was, this was a woman I, I loved, the woman I wanted to spend my life with. This was her dad, and there was a respect there. And we still even today laugh about that moment and some of the things that we shared back and forth, right? Depending on the perspective that we have of the person we're, we're engaging is the way we respond to them and engage them. All throughout the Bible, we see patterns like this. We, we see pictures of people that have engagement with God, and the response is very unique. It's very definitive. Why? Because there's this awe and respect for who God is. And as we look throughout the Bible, we can go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and what we see are all of these things are ultimately shadows meant to push us toward what it looks like to have a kingdom life, what it looks like to live in the kingdom with Christ, how we should respond with Christ, how should we should view Christ, our perspective of who God is that should overwhelm our living, our obedience, our response. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those passages. It is one of the greatest passages maybe in all of the scripture in the sense of being able to see who God is. It is a bit theologically heavy. I want to confess that to you. As we read Isaiah 6, it is theologically heavy. It's filled with theological ideas that are, are discussed and debated. And we're not going to have time to dig into all of these things. What I want to tell you this morning is this. My hope is not just to dump on you some doctrine. My hope is not just to, to, to leave with you some theology. My hope is that God would reframe our thinking and enhance our understanding of who he is. That as a result of this morning, we would get a clear picture of how great our God is. Now you might say this morning, well, Dave, why do I need that? I, I know how great God is. I mean, I'm here at church, aren't I? I don't need a deeper perspective of who God is. But can I be honest with you? I actually would argue that we far underestimate the God we serve. In fact, I would go one step further. I believe we as a culture... We underestimate what is great, and we overestimate what is trivial. Or let me say it another way. I believe we idolize what is good while trivializing what is great. We do this all the time. We idolize what is good. There are many good things. In fact, the scripture says we ought to enjoy all the good things that life offers us. Enjoy it richly in Christ. But we, we overestimate their impact in our lives. I think one of the areas we see this, there are many areas I can mention, but one of them is sports, isn't it? Now, I love sports. Sports is a good thing. I believe God created it with a purpose. There's a reason for it. I'm not sure created, if that's the right word, but I believe God is, is, enjoys sports as well. 
I think it's a way to glorify God. I enjoy watching sports, all sorts of sports, from golf to tennis to, to football, right? I mean, we love watching football, don't we, here at Ohio? Football is a prime example of how we do this. It's a good thing, nothing wrong with football, but what happens in specific games? I remember uh, years ago, I took my mom. My mom is a huge Baltimore Ravens fan. Uh, now, don't hold that against me, but she is. Now, and the reason for that is she grew up in, in, the, in the hood of Baltimore. She did. She grew up in the inner city of Baltimore, and she's got a lot of great stories about life there, and uh, even some of the stories that are really interesting about racial tensions that happened in Baltimore when she was a child there, and she remembers them. She had uh, some great history about that. But she grew up a huge Baltimore Colts fan. In fact, I have a signed Johnny Unitas autograph from when I was a baby that she got for me. She, she loved the Baltimore Colts. Well, of course, the Colts left town, and then uh, a few years later, a guy who is an enemy here in Ohio, a guy by the name of Art Modell, brought a team back to Baltimore, and they're named the Baltimore Ravens. And my mom is a huge fan, and she just had a birthday the other day. She's 80-some years old, and, and let me just say, um, when I say a huge fan, she knows the stats. She has posters of Ravens players in her bedroom. <laughs> That's not a lie. That's not an exaggeration. She's 80-some years old, and she has posters of Ravens players in her bedroom. I'm dead serious. She is a Ravens fan. She had never been to a game. And so uh, a few years back, I took her to a Ravens game. Now, Baltimore fans are very into the game. Uh, of course, by the fourth quarter, they're plastered, but they're into the game. You go to Redskins games in the, in, uh, growing up in Maryland, you could make a choice. Um, the Redskins fans, you sit in the upper deck, you might not make it out alive. So the difference between the fans are great. And so uh, to go to a Ravens game, and we're sitting a little bit above the club level seating, and we're surrounded with all these fans, and, and this game is back and forth. They're scoring. I mean, it's just a great game. And we get to the fourth quarter, and the Ravens are on a drive with like three minutes to go. They're, they're down by three, and they're on a drive, and we're all with, with, with in, you know, intensity and intention. We're watching this game unfold. And all the people around us, I mean, by this time, they were drunk as could be. Here were my mom and I sitting there watching the game, cheering them on. She was in her full Ravens gear. And, and they go down the field, and they score a touchdown to take the lead with like 30 seconds ago. It was almost a sure win. The team had to score a touchdown. And as they scored this touchdown, this is what happened. As they scored this touchdown, everybody began to high-five each other. I'm sitting next to this guy. I have no clue who he is. All of a sudden, he wraps his arms around me and begins to kind of pick me up and toss me in excitement because the Ravens had just scored. Now, I don't know why, but instinctly, in the heat of the moment, guess what I did? I wrapped my arms back around him, and we embraced. Now, I got to confess to you, as I tell that story, that's a little weird. But isn't it true, if you've ever been to a game, don't you feel that way? You've been to a Buckeye game, and you're high-fiving, you're loving people you never don't even know. You'll never see them again, maybe. But you're excited. Here's my point. Here's the question I ask. A good thing like football. Why is it that we can get so excited, emotional, responsive, when it comes to something that will never transform life? And yet, for many of us, when it comes to spiritual things, we are dull. When it comes to spiritual things, we kind of are just going through the motions. When it comes to spiritual things, we're a bit complacent. I love what Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, said. He said this, he said, Our external lights, our ambitions, our reputation, our human relationships 
For all these things, our desires are eager. Our appetite's strong. Our love is warm. Our affection is zeal, uh, or zealous. Uh, our hearts are ardent toward these things. They're tender and sensitive when it comes to things. Easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned, and greatly engaged. We are depressed at our losses. We are excited and joyful about our worldly successes and prosperity. And for right so. But when it comes to spiritual matters, many of us are unmoved. If we are going to be emotional about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Shouldn't it be that we have a God that touches our hearts at the tenderest parts and shakes us deeply at the core? If I can confess to you this morning, I believe that many churches are filled with many men and women who underestimate the God that proclaimed to worship. They underestimate how awesome, how amazing, and how much of a gift it is to know him. It is. Let me ask you this morning, what is your view of God? Is it high and lofty? Or is it small and manageable? What is your view of God? If we understand the scriptures correctly, we see this rightly, it should reframe our minds. It should blast our minds and open our hearts to who God is. And it should reframe us intellectually, not only to believe in God, but now to have to respond to what he calls us to. In fact, I would dare say, if we understand who God is, it is like a gravitational force that will now work and orbit life around him. Everything else will respond to it. It's like a gravitational force. We see this over and over again pattern in the scripture. I want to show you one of those here in Isaiah chapter 6. Take a look with me, verse 1. We'll look together. Isaiah 6, 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my lips, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Many scholars think that this is the beginning, really, of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote, and this really becomes the, the, the commission of Isaiah as a prophet. He was already a prophet before, but this really commissions him as a prophet. Many believe, really, the prophecy of Isaiah begins right here in this moment in chapter 6. But I want you to notice that Isaiah gives us a note that sets for us a context. Notice it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now you and I, we would read that and pass over it. What does it matter? The king died. But in their world, this mattered. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah was prophesying during the time of a king called Uzziah. Isaiah was probably one of the most uh, prosperous kings in Judah's history. Judah, the southern kingdom, he was the king of Judah. Israel, the north, had already been taken captive. And under the king of Uzziah, there was great prosperity. In fact, Uzziah reigned for 52 years. I want you to think about that for a moment. You and I, every four years or eight years, will have a transition of government. 
in this day, Uzziah reigned for 52 years. Most of the generation that lived during that time only knew of Uzziah's reign. They only knew all that he had done for them. He had done multiple things. He had fortified the country. He had expanded its borders. He had improved the economy. He, he had also not only expanded the borders, but, but he also protected them from foreign enemies. And then on top of that, he restored worship in the temple. He was a well-known king that did some amazing things. The problem was, at the end of Uzziah's life, we find him being lifted up with pride. As a result, God gives him leprosy. So if you read the story of Uzziah the king, his life ends not in the, not in the courts of the king where he would be buried. He would actually be buried in the leper's courts, in, in, the, in the cemetery of the lepers where no one would go because he had been given pride. He was prosperous for many years, but then at the end of his life, uh, he had been caught up in pride and God judged him. Now, the king had died. This created a, a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion. All of a sudden, there was political disarray. All of a sudden, there was crises that were happening in the nation. There was spiritual confusion that was happening among the people. And so Isaiah the prophet, who was supposed to speak for God, goes into the temple to get a fresh word from God. He wanted to know God's plan. He goes into the temple and he says, God, give me your plan. And what God does is it doesn't give him a plan, but gives him a vision. A vision of God himself. Now as we work through this, we're going to see three perspectives. These are the three scenes of this story. I want to look at each, at each of these scenes with a specific perspective that it's meant to bring to us. So the first one we see, number one, is this. What I would call the upward perspective of God's splendor. The upward perspective of God's splendor. Notice the description that is given. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Notice the description of God. Imagine yourself being there. You're caught up into the throne room of heaven, and it says, there was the Lord seated on the throne, and it was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Notice the descriptions there. Number one, God is, is on the throne. Notice that. I, I love this picture. Don't miss it. God is not like worldly leaders. You know, we, we think of even the Queen of England, you know, we live in a democracy, but think of a monarchy like England, which is not quite a monarchy, it's, it's got this historical monarchy there, but, but the Queen doesn't sit on a throne day and night, does she? She gets out and meets people and there's duties that she has. Our president doesn't sit on a throne in the Oval Office, no, he's out and about meeting foreign nations and making sure that government and legislation happens, right? This is what the leaders of the world do. But God is seated on the throne. I love this. He is, he is unchallenged, he is unhurried, and he is unworried. He is occupying the throne as we speak. There's never a moment where he has to get up to deal with something. There's never a moment where he's pacing back and forth what is going to happen on the earth. He is in full control. He is on the throne. He is reigning. He is reigning supreme without concern. His plan is coming about. Notice it says, the train of his robe fills the temple. I love this. Uh, in that day, the, the length of one's train of a robe was an indication of their strength, power, and majesty. So Isaiah sees this and he says, the train of his robe, it overflowed the entire place. Like it was massive. It was, it was immense. It was eye-opening. Why? Because God is so big. God is so mighty. God is so powerful. 
his robe just overflowed the entire place. He is majestic and filled with splendor. Then we see what's taking place in the throne room. So this is the image. And now he gives us what's taking place. Notice what happens. Verse 2. It says, above the throne, above him, stood the seraphim. Seraphim is plural, the word seraph. Uh, and in Hebrew, if you add the word im to it, it's plural, seraphim. So these are multiple beings, these angelic celestial beings. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So with two of the wings, he covered his face out of respect and awe. And the idea that he could not, they could not look on the holy God. With the, with the second one, they covered their feet so as to almost uh, humility, humility and protection of sin and, and this idea that they're unworthy. And yet with two, they flew. Now, I love this image of seraphim because this is the only place we find the seraphim in the scriptures. And literally, seraphim means burning ones. These are the burning ones. And, and, and why is that? Was it the way they looked? I, I, we're not sure. Nowhere are they mentioned anywhere else in scripture. But Revelation, the book of Revelation, John tells us there are literally thousands of beings like this in heaven. There are, there are the, the four living creatures and 24 elders, and there are, are cherubs that are angelic beings in heaven. Then there are the, the, the archangels that do work on earth, right? And so we see this engagement of thousands of beings in heaven that are there serving God. By the way, isn't it true when we think of angelic beings, we think of uh, those little chubby statues of those babies with wings that are playing harps? They're called cherubs. That's what we think of, don't we? But you might have one in your yard. And that's what our image is of these angelic beings. When you read the scripture about angels, that is not the perspective you get. They are mighty, they are strong. They're not little chubby babies with, with, uh, with harps playing in the garden. Um, they would probably hate their job if they were. But notice here, they have six wings, and they, they're doing something very, very distinctly, very, very intentionally. Notice what they're doing. They're calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. They're calling this out, and the idea is repeated over and over again. They're, this one capstone phrase that echoes throughout all the scriptures, they're calling out, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the question I ask is, why do they say the word holy? This is the only characteristic of God that is repeated three times throughout the scripture. Like it doesn't say love, love, love. It doesn't say grace, grace, grace. It doesn't say mercy, mercy, mercy. It doesn't say justice, justice, justice. Why does it say holy, holy, holy? Why do they call this out one to another as they fly around the throne room? By the way, I want to make sure we grasp this. Right now, this is happening. Right now, this is going on. In fact, when we eat lunch today, it's going to happen in, in, in the throne room. When, when uh, we go to work tomorrow, it's going to be happening in the throne room. Why is this word holy kind of the echoing phrase through the ages? In fact, here it is intensive. It's, it's emphatic. It literally is a growing force. It's like us saying holy, holier, holiest. It's like this growing intensity in its repetition. So why holy? Now, Holiness is a pretty interesting concept, isn't it? When we think of the word holiness, uh, we kind of give holiness a bad rap in our culture today, don't we? We say things about people like we call them, well, they're holier than thou. And what are we actually calling them? We're actually saying they're like a moral nerd, right? Somehow they're goody two-shoes, they're holier than thou. And, and so what happens is slowly holiness is kind of 
we, we have this distant idea of holiness. We don't really like to talk about holiness. We don't really like to grasp holiness. And so what happens is holiness in some form in our culture has lost its holiness. Because the word holiness, by definition, this word kadosh, literally means not, not without error, but, but without equal. Holiness is the idea that this person or this one is set apart, is different, is unique, is in a class by itself. So, why is holiness the word they use? Here's why I think. Now, this is a, a concept or an idea. I think they use this word holiness, and they speak this word holiness, because holiness is not so much an attribute of God, as it is a summation of who he is. Now you might say, Dave, put that in layman terms. What does that mean? This idea is that holiness is not just a part of his characteristics, right? It's not just that he's love, justice, mercy, grace, knowledge, truth, and then holy. It's not one of the list of his characteristics. It is what defines all of his characteristics. What do I mean? Let me just let me describe this. So, God is love. But he's not just love in the way you and I are love. He is holy love. He is set apart love. He is distinct love. God is merciful. But he's not just merciful in the way that a judge is in a, in a court case. No, he is holy mercy. He is set apart mercy. He is uniquely merciful. He is filled with grace. But he's not just filled with grace. No, he's filled with holy grace. Grace that is above and beyond what you and I can ever imagine or think. He is a God of justice, but not just the justice of a police officer that catches somebody speeding, but he is wholly just, meaning his justice is so unique, that's why his justice and love can come together. So holiness begins to define all that God is. Everything he is is that it's holy, it's set apart, it's unique, it's different. It is a synonym for his deity. So here we see the epiphany of praise around the throne room that is echoing since creation and will echo 10,000 trillion years from now. I guess it would be 10 trillion, 10,000 years from now. Holy, holy, holy. Now I read this and I think, man, if I was there, if I was usher, ushered up there right now, there would be a part of me that would want to go up to the seraphim, tap one of the seraphs on the shoulder and go, hey, are you tired of flying around saying these words? Like, would you like to be promoted to be a chubby angel with a, uh, uh, with a harp? I mean, wouldn't that be cool? And you know what? I think they would respond and say, what are you talking about? We are only doing what we can respond to do because we see who God is. Are you kidding me? This is the sovereign, holy one of the entire universe. We can't help but to speak what we see, and that is that he's holy. When, he, when he's loving you, he's holy. When he's showing grace, he's holy. When he's showing even justice, he's holy. All of these things so encapsulate who God is, they can't help but to speak it. It overwhelms their enunciation, and it reflects who he is. Notice it says the foundations of the threshold shakes at these words. Now if we stop this here, we have a, a beautiful picture of who God is. But I want you to see the reaction of Isaiah in this mist. He sees a picture of the incomparable splendor of God. And all of a sudden, he is caught up in the fact that this holy God can see him. That leads to the second perspective, not only an outward perspective of God's majesty, but an inward perspective of our inadequacy. Notice what happens next. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
Isn't it interesting that Isaiah's reaction isn't, wow. Right, we see the Grand Canyon. We see Niagara Falls, and what do we respond? We respond with, wow. And we reflect that on God, don't we? Isn't God amazing to create something so beautiful? But here, when he sees God in his holiness, he doesn't respond with, wow. He responds with, whoa. Woe literally means judgment upon me. He is self-renunciating uh, renunciating himself. He, he is self-condemning himself. He is self-judging himself. He is saying, I am caught up. I have been caught red-handed. I am busted. In fact, notice what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost. I, I love this word in the Hebrew. It's the word damah. It's very unique. And it's the word to cease or to cut off. It means to be undone or destroyed. He says, listen, I am done. I have seen God and I am done. I will not last. He will destroy me. I am finished. He sees God and he gets a sense of his own inadequacy. You know, when I read this, I, it reminds me of uh, years ago, Alice and I went to visit some friends in California. And uh, while we were there, one of the things I really wanted to see was the island of Alcatraz. I had written a paper about Alcatraz Island. I enjoy history. I love history. And I wrote a paper about Alcatraz Island, which Alcatraz, as you know, is, is a prison that had some of the most hardened criminals, much like the Iowa State Reformatory, except it's out in San Francisco Bay. It was unescapable, supposedly. And, uh, and they had some of the hardest criminals. Al Capone was there, and Machine Gun Kelly was there, and all these old criminals. And so I wanted to take my wife on a date to a prison. I guess we do that here with the Ohio State Reformatory. And so we went out to see Alcatraz. And we got on the island. It was very interesting because when you get on the island by the boat, you look out and you see the, San, the city of San Francisco across the San Francisco Bay. But as you get in the prison, you actually can't see the city anymore. The only thing you see is the lights from the city. And there was a guy there that was actually an old prison guard. And he was doing a, a book signing and he was talking about uh, his time there as a prison guard. And he shared that when they would bring when they would bring prisoners onto the island, they wanted to give them one last glimpse of the beauty of San Francisco as a city. And then they wanted to hide from them all the beauty of that so that the last glimpse they had was of the freedom that was happening just a, a, a mile away. And yet here they were in the prison, and they were caught, and they couldn't see out. Even the courtyard, by the way, where they would have recreation time, was made down in a valley so they could only see a portion of water, but they couldn't see the city, but they knew it was there. When I read this passage, that's the image that I get. Isaiah gets a vision of God, and then he sees who he really is. He's caught up in himself now. He sees himself for what he really is. He understands that he, he can't escape the holiness of God, and he says, whoa, I'm busted. Notice why. He tells us, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of an unclean lips. Why does he say that? Now, this is pretty interesting. Follow me for a moment. I think Isaiah here was describing what would take in place before in his ministry. In fact, if you go back to chapter 5, I want to show you this. Isaiah was actually a professional woer. This is what he did. He, he was a, I would call him, a, he had a master's degree in woe. Take a look. Look at chapter 5. I want to show you. Chapter 5, this is Isaiah prophesying. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. He says, woe to those who are taking lands, and they're expanding them without sharing. Woe to you. Verse 11. 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. He says, woe to coffee drinkers. That's what it says. All right, it doesn't stop there. Who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. So they're drunk out of their minds. He said, woe to them. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Does that sound familiar in our culture today? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Do you notice how many woes? It's woe, woe, woe. Here's Isaiah, much like you and I can do today in our culture, and we can look at the culture and say, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them, judgment on them. But then he gets a glimpse of God, and notice what happens. Woe becomes personal. It's not woe is them. It's woe is me. All of a sudden, he is caught up in his own reality, his own inadequacy, his own insufficiency. All of a sudden, he sees himself for who he is. The woe becomes personal. But I want you to notice, by the way, for you and I, we can do the same thing, right? Woe is our culture. Woe is those people. But when we see God for who he is, it starts with us. Woe is me. And what I love about this is God shows him his inadequacy, but doesn't leave him there. He doesn't leave him there. Notice what God does. It says that the angel, notice there in in verse 6, then one of the seraphim, the seraphs, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken from the tongs of the altar. John, by the way, in Revelation, confirms that in heaven there's an altar there of coal. And it says, this, this angel takes the tongs and takes a coal from the altar, and he touches my mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Can you imagine this moment? The seraphim who were flying around saying, Holy, 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 fly down and grab a coal from the altar. I can imagine if I was Isaiah, I was thinking, This is the end. God is going to incinerate me. He's going to destroy me. I'm going to be burned up. What happens? The angel touches his lips with the coal the place where he was in sin. And it says, you are forgiven. You have been atoned for. See, God didn't bring Isaiah into the throne room to incinerate him. God brought Isaiah into the throne room to rescue him, to prepare for him what he wanted him to be. See, when we read Isaiah 6, the feeling we should have is not doom. What's happening in Isaiah 6 is that it's calling us to contemplate afresh the holiness of God and be driven to him in humility and willing to quickly respond to him in calling. Or or let me put this another way. I believe in order to be what God desires me to be, I have to first realize what I'll never be. In order for me to be ready for mission, I've got to realize I'm inadequate. Now, you might think, you might be here and you might think, Dave, this is not a real encouraging passage. I mean, I mean, we got Isaiah seeing a glimpse of God and then he says, woe is me. I mean, how encouraging is this? Can, can I just preach from my heart for a moment? I think we get this totally confused in our Christian culture today. When you read the scripture, the scripture always begins with our inadequacy. Always. You find me a place where God calls somebody who's strong and mighty. You don't find it. He always calls the weak. Why? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. If we, if we just proclaim a message that says, right, if the Bible just says, hey, you're great, you're grand, you're wonderful, let's go. You know what's going to happen? You and I are going to go to do the mission, 
that God calls us to do, and then what are we going to do very quickly? We're going to say, look at me. Look what I've done. Or, you know what actually does happen? Isn't that we say, look at me, because we're, we know better than that? What happens is I begin to burn out because my sufficiency is not in who God is. My sufficiency is in who I think I am. And all of a sudden, and this is why church leaders and, and pastors even, and church people, why people begin to walk away, is because they built their faith on themselves. And all of a sudden, instead of seeing God for who they are and seeing that they're insufficient and inadequate, all of a sudden they build their lives on themselves. And when it begins to burn out, they begin to want to jet. They want to begin to want to leave. They begin to want to fade. You know what I can tell you? I love the fact that God's word begins with our deficiency. I love the fact that the gospel begins with my sin. You know why? Because by acknowledging that, I feel free. I don't have to be enough. I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to be the sufficient one. No, in my deficiency, I attach myself to the Holy One who now does what only He can do in me. I can only be holy. Why? Because He's holy. I can only be loved. Why? Because he's love. I can only have grace. Why? Because he's the gracious one in my life. See, all of a sudden, I feel freedom. Why? Because it's not based upon me. Because if it is, it's going to fail tomorrow. But it's based upon this holy one that can sustain. And so if I'm going to be something for God, it begins with realizing what I'll never be. What I can never be without God. That I am inadequate. Now, if I stop this story here, if we stop right here, we would have the ultimate drama, wouldn't we? We have drama, we have danger, we have climax, we have resolution, and we have a sigh of relief. What we've just read is a perfect Hallmark movie. It's all the fittings for it. You would think of this ended at verse 8, Isaiah would fall down on his feet and go, Lord, I worship you. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. In fact, what we're going to find next is God finally speaks. Notice it. First time he speaks in this passage. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah doesn't respond with, well, God, give me the plan first. Well, God, give me the details of what you're asking me to do. Notice the response of Isaiah. He says, here am I, send me. That's point three. It goes from upward to inward to now outward. Number three, outward perspective of God's mission. God is on a mission. And so he says, who am I going to send? Who's going to go for me? And in instinct, in a chorus of praise, Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. I'm yours. You have won. See, a flaming heart will lead to a speaking tongue. A flaming heart will lead to a, a, a commission to say, I have to go, I have to be willing to go. This is, by the way, the pattern we see all throughout the scriptures. This idea that we see God for who he is, we respond in faith, we then say, I'm willing to go. Uh, let, me, let, let me prove that to you. I want to show you. Go, if you go to the New Testament, John chapter 20, this is exactly what happened after Jesus resurrected. In John chapter 20, verse 19, listen to this. It says, on the evening of that day, this is the day of the resurrection. Jesus died on a cross. He rose again. He came to fulfill what the Father called him to. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He proved to them that he had risen again. He shows them his glory of the resurrection. Now watch. Then the disciples were glad. The word there means they were overwhelmed with joy. They weren't just happy. They were overwhelmed with joy when they saw the Lord. 
And Jesus said to them, notice it, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Do you notice what happens? Jesus shows up, resurrected. They're overwhelmed with joy. Then what happens? He says, now I send you. Who will go for us? Who will go on my behalf? This is the gospel proclamation. I see who God is. I get what I'm not. I say yes to God's call. Let me put this in another way. I would put it this perspective. A high view of God and an accurate view of self will lead to an urgent view of mission. A high view of God, an accurate view of self will lead to an urgent view of mission. You know what that means? That means I can correlate if I'm not following the mission, it's probably because I don't have a high view of God. If I don't have a high view of God, I'm probably not going to live on mission. That means right now, if I'm sitting complacent in my life, I don't feel an urge to share the truth of Jesus Christ, then I probably am not seeing God accurately. Or I'm probably not seeing myself rightly. If I'm not willing to live this thing out, then I'm probably not seeing it accurately. I need a view. I need a perspective. And as Peter writes, we have a prophecy more confirmed than the resurrected Jesus right here. He says the word is a prophecy even more confirmed than Isaiah saw in heaven because it's been written for us. Jesus rose again. We know he's done these things and as he was sent, we are sent. Greater perspective equals greater purpose. Now I love as a church, that's who we want to be. We're not just going to tell you, oh you're great, you're grand, you're wonderful, go. Because you're going to go and you're going to burn out. I'm going to go and I'm going to burn out. We're gonna tr- or we're going to try to take credit for it. No, instead, we preach sometimes these hard messages that say, you know what, we are inadequate. We are sinful. We have a holy God, though, that is forgiving and gracious. Use at work. And now he says, who will go for us? That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of what God has done. And I love the fact that we're a church that is willing to proclaim that and willing to answer that and say, here am I. Send me. You know, if you open your, your programs right now, there's some interesting things inside there I want to show you as we close. Um, inside the, the, the backside page, if you look at the inside, there's a list of things that we have planned all summer and then even in 2020, things and opportunities for you to answer the call of God, to say, here am I, send me. God, I get who you are. I can't help but to live it out. Here am I, send me. Uh, we have partnerships around the world. We have a partnership in Cambodia with Asia's Hope. In Cambodia, we have two homes that have, where orphans have been rescued and been given godly families. They're being raised in a Christian home. What was once slavery now is freedom in Christianity. There's also a school there that one of the families of our church helped to have built uh, there in Cambodia. Have built, it, built in Cambodia amazing things, reaching out into the community. Uh, and there are families being built there, orphans that are being rescued. A chance to go and sponsor them and enjoy them. Guatemala. Uh, in Gu- Guatemala, we partner with Mission Impact. Uh, girls in Guatemala only have an education up to about sixth grade. What we've done is we partner with Proximos Pasos School, and there these girls are actually able to finish their education. Many of them now are thinking about becoming nurses and leaders in their community, and so we're helping them. Many of those girls are daughters of our coffee farmers, uh, where we get our coffee here at Crossroads. In, and we have a personal relationship with our coffee farmers. And many of their daughters go to the school that we support. And so you can help be a part of that. You can go see our coffee farmers, see them in action. You can actually help make the coffee that we drink 
uh, here at our coffee shop. I think of Global Lead. Global Lead is an organization training church leaders and pastors around the world. They're leading in discipleship and church healthy, church health, and then the heart of the leader, trying to build the heart of the leader, making sure that pastors endure. Uh, great trips. I, I love going with Chris Davis and Global Lead. It's been eye-opening to see the need to encourage church leaders around the world. Samaritan's Purse. Disaster relief. We have teams that have gone out already twice this year. We have a team planning to go out here near the fall, going out to serve uh, by helping disaster relief in and around our, our nation where you can go. And by the way, this is, a, this is a spiritual thing. You get to pray with people and talk with people about Christ as well. And then a new partnership that we're excited about. I don't want you to notice the triangle, right? We have a partnership with families. We have a partnership with, with schools. But we also have a partnership now with a church. We have uh, decided to take up a partnership with a church in Nepal. Uh, Joe Mesh, who's been here to Crossroads, uh, had a heart to plant a church. Joe Mesh planted a church in Nepal in the city of Kathmandu. Nepal is a very unreached people. It is one of the most unreached places on the planet, uh, yet it has a lot of religion. And so Joe Mesh felt the need not only to meet the needs of the people in Nepal, but help to bridge that to the gospel. And so we partnered with the church New Fellowship, Kathmandu. We're excited about that partnership as they try to reach the people of Nepal. There is a great vision that they have to, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all throughout the nation of Nepal. And already you can see some, some of these pictures. God is at work in that church. It's only been a few months, and yet God is already at work. I had the privilege of going there and being able to see firsthand how God is at work through this church as they were seeking becoming a church. By the way, I wanted to tell you, see these t-shirts, Pray, Send, Go? These t-shirts are meant to enhance our partnership in Nepal. You get yourself a t-shirt. It is a way to remind you to pray for our church partnership in Nepal and also to help, help, uh, help, help enhance that partnership, help, help to be able to know that they're, you're thinking of them. And so we hope you get a t-shirt to remind you of these different mission opportunities. And by the way, you don't have to go around the world to do ministry. You feel led by God to serve. We have a city center right downtown that is doing some amazing things. In fact, last week, our city center that has hosted the coffee and laundry services, we actually just surpassed our 500th load of laundry since February. Uh, we have had over 800 volunteer hours since February in our city center. Amazing things. In fact, I want to share one of the things that Pastor Jesse, our city center campus pastor, shared with me. Uh, he had the other day, he learned about some gentlemen that had been coming to our city center uh, for service. And he found out that they were sleeping on the gazebo in the square. And so he decided he had to go pick someone up. He decided to stop there to see them. And one of the guys said this to Jesse. I want to quote this gentleman. He said, I so appreciate the city center. I've never seen anything like it in any community I've ever been in. It just really says that you guys truly care about our community. Isn't that a great testimony of someone who's been able to have and receive services from our city center? And so there's a place right there in Shelby. We have opportunities this year in Shelby to help with lunches for kids and chances to have conversations with kids about the gospel. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you would, you'll notice a card. We're gonna ask you to do three things. Would you pray for our teams? Would you pray for our partners? We're asking you to pray. Everybody here can pray. If you have a vision of who God is through his word, if you know who God is, you gotta say, here am I, send me. And so you can pray. Some, some others, you're, you maybe will wanna take one other step and maybe for you wanna send some people. We have scholarship opportunities available to send people out into the mission field. And then lastly, maybe you feel led to go. I'm gonna ask every person, would you fill out this card? 
if the only thing you can write is to pray, we want to see that. We want to see that you're committed to praying for our mission partnerships. Would you fill out this card? You can pray, you can send, or you can go to one of these amazing trips and see how God can use you to proclaim the gospel. There's a second card in there because not only are we doing this around the world, but we're also doing this throughout our region. We are putting crossroads campuses. We have a campus that's happening in Shelby. God is doing amazing things there. Uh, we've seen baptisms there. Uh, God is at work. We also have our Lexington campus about ready to start. We're launching this in September. We have a preview service plan August 11th. We have our service launch on September 8th. If you would pull out this Crossroads Lexington campus, and would you also fill this out? There's a few options. You can pray for our Lexington campus. You can commit to going to Lexington. We need some people that want to go help neighbors reach their neighborhoods. And would you, maybe you're from Lexington, say, you know what, I want to go to the Lexington campus. Or maybe you're from the Belleville area, say, I want to go to the Lexington campus. Or maybe you're from, uh, you know, Fredericktown, you say, you know what, Lexington campus would be closer for me. Uh, would you fill this out? Maybe you'd be willing to serve at our Lexington campus. Would you fill that to let us know that you're interested in finding out more about your role in Lexington? We're excited for this launch. Uh, I was over there this week and just walking through there and praying. I was blown away. I mean, it looks like a mini crossroads right here, Park Avenue over there. They've done a great job with that building, and it is almost ready uh, for us to launch the campus. And so would you fill this out and share with us your interest in being a part of what God is doing? As we end, I want to show you this quick video that describes how you as a church, how we as a church are making a difference around the world and how you can be a part of it. Take a look at this video. After coming back from Cambodia last year, I really felt called to go again. My wife and I started putting money aside for the trip, uh, but we were just coming up short. We would found out then Crossroads offers a scholarship fund for missions trips. So we applied for it, which is real easy to do. And this has enabled us now to meet our goal. And I'm able now to go back over to Cambodia and meet the children we support, Shreyput and Chanti, and uh, spend some time with them. Uh, and if you want to uh, uh, go on a missions trip, it's easy to apply for the scholarships. And if you can't go, uh, you can support uh, financially by giving towards that scholarship as well. Some might think a warming center, laundry, how does that serve our community? When you're sleeping on the streets and you're cold, a warming center is a great place to go. When you don't have laundry facilities, having your laundry done two days a week is a great blessing. We maxed out yesterday with 31 loads of laundry. That's a lot of people to serve. The people are so grateful and so blessed to be in a pleasant environment. Some of our people have mentioned they feel so safe there when they're there. We are able to serve them by connecting them with community resources. Our main focus is laundry, and that's the greatest need that we can address at this time. What a wonderful opportunity to serve our community in needs that no one else ministers to. If you're so inclined, we'd love to have you join us at the City Center. It's a wonderful opportunity. I was blessed to be a part of a missions trip to Guatemala. And I, while I was there, I met a little boy named Emerson. Emerson, we became fond of each other and we spent most of our time together. And when we were playing soccer, I realized that his shoes were messed up and they weren't in the best condition. And playing soccer myself, I realized that that's really hard to do without the right equipment. So one of the days before I left, I went to the market and I grabbed one of the best shoes I could find that had the coolest colors and his favorite color blue. And I gave it to him the next day. 
Um, when he showed up, he seemed like he was in shock, but he had a really genuine response and he seemed to be really happy and we still keep in contact to this day. At first, I was very hesitant and coming on this business trip with not knowing what to expect or, or what I was going to be doing there, but in the end, it was one of the best experiences of my life and I'm glad that I got to share it with my grandma and, and I'd advise a lot of other people to take the same trip as well. Been with the Samaritan's Purse on five mission trips now. Uh, want to just say it's been a rewarding experience. It's been a great experience to serve with other folks, to help people who are in the midst of a very, very hardship, very deep hardship in their lives. It's very rewarding, very humbling experience uh, as you help homeowners through the disaster relief portion, especially where you clean out a home and help them do something that would take them months to do, we can do with a team in one week. It's very rewarding through the spiritual aspect because you do pray with the homeowners, you pray with the team every day, and there's a devotion every day. It's very mission-minded. Samaritan's Purse has been a great partner for us as we've worked with them through Crossroads Church. So I'm with My City Mentoring, and I have been with the girl uh, that I'm a mentor to for a little over a year. Um, it's a great time just to spend some time being her cheerleader, boosting her up, um, just helping with her self-esteem. I do help with her academics. Um, the My City Mentoring program is affiliated with our church now. There is a big need in our community. They have a waiting list of about 70 to 100 kids who are still looking for mentors. So I suggest you stop by one of the tables, find out some information, or if you see me in the hallway, stop and ask me and I'll be happy to share my story with you. I had the opportunity to go to the Philippines with Global Lead a couple years ago. Uh, Global Lead, their motto is ministry, mentoring, and multiplying. And, and kind of the entire goal of the ministry is to bring in leaders from various parts of the world and to do these training seminars where they equip them to evangelize and to make disciples, um, but also to multiply themselves as leaders um, I really came out with a vision for some of the groups that I lead here at Crossroads and um, came out of that and, and kind of bought into that model of, of not just ministering and mentoring, but also multiplying myself. And the last couple of years, um, that has really um, been a turning point for me as a group leader. Um, and, you know, if you ever have a chance to partner with Global Lead, either going on a trip um, or by giving. Um, I would strongly encourage a Global Lead is an outstanding organization doing great work, um, equipping global leaders um, for work around the world for the work of the church. My family has been so blessed to have the opportunity to sponsor several kids in Cambodia through the Asia's Hope program which Crossroads offers and um, we have just been so blessed to see these kids just grow and mature and to become um, caring, responsible young adults. I just think it's so exciting to see that Soclores and the other kids at Asia's Hope are going to become the new godly leaders in the country of Cambodia. Just a few of the many ways you can be a part of what God is doing. Would you stand with me as we close? And I, and I want to ask you just real quickly, would you do three things? First of all, if you're here and you're without Christ... Christ came. He was sent. He came to earth. He died on a cross for you, rose again for you, and he walked out of a grave. He showed it to many people. 
He was seen by eyewitnesses. He ascended to heaven and it's been written for us. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, maybe today is the day you've seen Christ afresh and anew. We'd love to share with you. Stop by Next Steps. We'd love to share with you how you can know Christ. If you're here and you know Christ but you're struggling, we'd love to pray with you. I'm going to ask you to do three, a couple things. Would you, would you fill out these cards? Everyone here, if you, if you know Christ, you've, you understand who God is, here am I, send me. The least we can do is pray. The least we can do is pray, but maybe you can send someone or maybe you can go yourself. Lexington or uh, to Global Ministry. Uh, secondly, would you stop at the tables? Outside we have some tables set up. They have some information about each of these ministries and a chance for you to get to know what is happening. We'd love to talk with you about how you can partner uh, with the partners that we have around the world to proclaim the glorious truth that God saves, the holy God has come and sent us as holy people set apart to proclaim that great message. Would you bow with me? Um, God, we thank you for this reminder. Lord, it is that our view of you leads to a proper view of ourselves, which leads to a commission that's centered not on us but you, not on our ability but on your greatness. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that prays, that we would pray for our partners, that we would pray for one another, that we would pray for our church. God, that we would be a church that sends, that we would send people. As, as uh, teams are about ready to go to Guatemala, Guatemala and Cambodia and, and to the, the Philippines, God, that we would send people and then we would go. That we would answer the call, that we would say, here am I, send me. That the only response that we would have to the greatness of what you've done for us, that your, your blood has touched our lips and healed us, or your, your blood has washed our sins as white as snow, we can't help but to say, here am I, send me. Send me where you will. Use me in the way that you want. All for your name. Jesus Christ, your strong, powerful, mighty, holy name. We ask and pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Love you guys. Go get a t-shirt. Stop by the tables. Love you. God bless you.